This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit... Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Uh, I've got Vivian on the line to tell us all about what's happening tonight. Hello, Viv, can you hear me? Yes, hi, Andy. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'd like to say salut, Babette, Uh, although she's gone to France for the moment, so she might not get this program for a while. Okay. (laughs) I keep forgetting to mention it. Yeah. Oh, no, well, she always listens. But we're going to Port Augusta in South Australia tonight. But before we do, I'd like us to stop for a minute, listeners, and think of people in Pakistan. They had a heat wave in Karachi this month, and at the same time they had power outages and the holy month of Ramadan. So a lot of elderly people were not eating or drinking during the day, and then they have had over 65 deaths. And uh, two years before that, they had 1,300 people died in a heat wave. So when we're thinking about our campaigns, you know, climate campaigns, I think that adds urgency to it. Mm. Yeah. Um, see the the effect, yeah. Yeah, and some of the campaigns the listeners might see as urgent in Australia are land clearing, apparently in Queensland, right up near the Barrier Reef, which will impact the reef. There's been, you know, land clearing licences given that are going ahead, and it was in today's paper that, you know, Josh Frydenberg won't do anything and the Labour Party won't do anything, and really we're going to have to ramp up campaigns for that because that sequesters carbon that all those trees on private land and uh, they've been given permits that they shouldn't have. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, shocking, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And there's a few, it just, people listen to this program probably think, what can I do? Well, there are those campaigns. It's not just Stop Adani, it's also Stop Land Clearing. And now um, Northern um, Northern Territory has lifted their moratorium on coal seam gas. We had a BZE discussion night. Um, listeners can look at the BZE website and see that all the talk that was given there was very good about what that gas, you know, from the Northern Territory yep. adds up to in climate warming potential, you know. Yeah. It's huge. So, um, but tonight we're going to talk really about solutions and we've got an hour and a half um, uh, to to uh, listen to my about my trip to Port Augusta. Now, I went up there by bus and I only had four hours in Port Augusta, but the um, MP for Port Augusta is Dan Van Hostelikant, who's well known to listeners because he's been on our program lots of times before in this repower Port Augusta story. They wanted to remove the old coal-fired power station. So he, he met me at the bus and we went and sat in the park and he gave me a fantastic interview, so that's the first one. Uh, I loved your interviews out <laughs> on the, out <laughs> in the field. They're great. That's right, a few magpies in the background and everything. And this is, think, arid. Australia's is really arid. They're getting hardly any rainfall up there. Port Augusta, I've never been there. It's quite beautiful, actually. I think it could grow on you. I've been through there. It is lovely. It's it, yeah. yeah. So but it's dry, isn't it? It's, yeah. Um, yeah. And then I spoke to one of the workers who'd been 29 years at the power plant. His name's Brett Prentice, and he was worried about how they'd rehabilitated the ash pit because there's this flying dust through the time of time. There's wind. They get a lot of wind. This dust flies up, and the people are just sick of it. You know, they've had mm. high 
um, um, respiratory bad health, lung cancer rates double the state, etc. Before, oh. when they had the fire, uh, you know, the coal, but now they're getting this stuff, and it's just not good enough. So he talks about that. And then I've got Dr. Shearman, who was very big. He took a big part in convincing the community about the health impacts back when they had the coal-fired power station. Listeners might remember we've been covering this story for six years or so. And then I talked to Dan Spencer who used to be with AYCC and they marched from Port Augusta to Adelaide and he gives me an update. And then if listeners can hang on at 6 o'clock we'll hear about the new things that are happening there, the thrilling new solar power plant being built by a group called Solar Reserve and uh, and it'll be the first one in Australia providing 24-hour solar power because it's got storage, you know, of the energy in molten salt. Mm. And then the last person I met, there was this young guy, he was just about your age, Andy, his name was Sam Johnson, he shook my hand and he called me mate, <laughs> I felt yeah, very comfortable right. <laughs> <laughs> in his office and he, he was all happily full of, his eyes were sparkling and he told me all about the, he told me about the rehabilitation problem, he was on to that too, but then he said how excited they all were about the 11 renewable energy projects they've got coming along in that area and he oh, said we're, we're going to be the hub of renewable energy no question in Australia so you know I hope in the future people will take their children there on tour to see all this marvellous renewable yeah. energy yeah. yeah awesome yeah so I hope listeners enjoy this show please give us feedback listeners and thank you for everyone to, at Port Augusta who, who helped me I was, you know they really made it easy for me to go around and the guy from the power plant took me out to see the power plant and uh, you know it's epic what's happening there, so it's an exciting story. Brilliant. All right, well, we'll get that underway now. Okay, thanks, Thanks, Viv. Talk to you soon. And here we go. Enjoy. The Honourable Dan Van Hospelikan is the Energy Minister in the New South Australian Government. He's spoken to us several times before on this radio program because his electorate covers Port Augusta. And Beyond Zero Emissions wrote the Repower Port Augusta plan. There was a massive community effort making this great transition happen. The coal mine and power plants have closed and a concentrated solar thermal plant from Solar Reserve will be built by 2019 if all goes well. So welcome to the Beyond Zero show, Dan, and tell us what role you have played in all this transition. Thank you, Vivian. Thank you very much for coming to Port Augusta too. We really do appreciate when people go to the trouble to do that. I've played a role, but I'm one of many people that have that have played a role. And, and I do give credit to Beyond Zero Emissions and Doctors for the Environment because they were the very first people to come to Port Augusta and address a public meeting about the possibilities. And I remember very well Dr David Shearwater and uh, Mark Oggie being the two key people at that time. And of course, many people supporting them and many, many since. So they deserve the credit for getting it going. The community was very much encouraged by, by what we learnt that day. And in fact, I met with David and Mark afterwards. They had a view that Basically, the, the, the coal-fired power station could close and we could build four, five or six mm. uh, modules of solar thermal generation, which sounded fantastic. I had a view that we needed to actually make a transition, that we should start with one mm. or two 
improve them up, make sure they're working, make sure they're reliable, uh, and the next ones would be cheaper to build. And over time, we could close down the, the, the coal-fired power station. So, so at least we had common ground because we knew we wanted to get to the same place. We had a different view about how to get there. Since then, of course, um, the, the, the work was done with the community and with many, many very positive organisations from around Australia that took interest in our area um, about how to, to develop solar thermal here, not the least of which, of course, is Solar Reserve, who's, yeah. who's the proponent and the company uh, that, that will actually do the work, so they deserve enormous credit as yeah. well. And Alinta, who ran the power station, uh, shut down the power station for commercial reasons. Now, I still in hindsight think it would have been much better for the local community with regard to electricity prices, with regard to to reliability, with regard to jobs to have had a smoother transition yeah. but we have what we have and we are well on the way now to more and more renewables being generated around Port Augusta. Okay, well there are quite a few places around Australia are going to face this fate of uh, life after coal and uh, the main employer in town is the coal-fired power plant or the coal mine and so people are very keen to know what the blueprint is could you um, tell me oh, they also closed a coal mine here at Lee Creek yep. so you know that town's left dangling but I believe they've got innovative ideas how they might uh, reinvent themselves and I wonder what you've learned about this um, transition how it should be managed what can you say just to listeners maybe in Morewell or towns that are going to hear this podcast what are the key things to manage it better? Well, um, m my personal view, um, and some of this I realise may not be exactly what your listeners would favour, but my personal view is that step one, figure out where you want to get to, and whether that's in five years or ten years, but, mm. but determine the place you want to be, ideally as much renewable as possible, affordable and reliable electricity. Then bring together all of the people, organisations, government, companies, who share that vision and then work backwards and figure out the best way together to get to that end result because mm. if if people are driven by the pathway more than the result you're less likely to get the result I think now what that means is you, you bring together all the goodwill about the result mm. but you will have um, Robust conversations and, and, and commercial interests, uh, environmental interests, a whole range of things will come together with different views about how you get there. But so long as you don't forget that you all share the common view about where you want to go, I think that improves your chances rather than, you know, just to pick examples, somebody saying, shut the cold now, create the absolute need for something else and it'll come. Or another person saying, no, don't turn off any coal yeah. until we are 100% self-sufficient yeah. in renewables. And of course, they're the extreme examples mm. with, with, with 20 other options in between. But make sure you share the common vision mm. and you're far more likely to get to where you need to be. Okay, well, you mentioned the Doctors uh, for the Environment and they wrote a submission to the Senate two years ago that said that the previous state government had really failed to understand the urgent health problems here. They said the lung cancer rate was double that of other forms of cancer and children's respiratory disease was the highest in the state. Now, they recommended that monitoring air quality shouldn't be left to the power plant company which I think it was at that time they said it should be immediately available like data on air quality it should be immediately available 
especially for doctors, through the EPA. What are you doing here at the moment now to protect the health of these people, respiratory health, I mean, as this transition happens? Yeah, well, look, I, I do agree with uh, the, the, the basic premise of, of that report that was done two years ago. I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I, I don't mm. speak as a, somebody who can really talk in detail about respiratory health. But um, we have had... Uh, 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 way above the average incidence of lung cancer and other health issues for decades in, in Port Augusta. I've raised that in Parliament, uh, you know, very shortly after I was elected. And to be quite blunt, I didn't make much progress. I just mm. hit a bit of a brick wall. With regard to your question about what are we doing now, uh, the company, uh, Alinta, has transitioned into Flinders Power. So the company Flinders Power have their monitoring stations, but there is also an EPA station which has been placed in the um, apparently the most uh, commonly downwind spot. Mm. And there's also a community power, uh, sorry, community dust monitoring station which the equipment has been provided by Greenpeace. So, so there are three different organisations monitoring uh, dust at the moment. Of course, instead of um, you know coal ash coming from the, the, the chimney stack of the power station, which clearly was a, a toxic material, we're now wrestling with dust, clean dirt, but very, very small particulate matter, which is giving people some respiratory issues and, and some other issues around town in the last year. I don't understand why you've got three types of monitoring, though. Well, because we have a, a range of interest groups, and, and the, the point that you made, Vivian, about um, is it appropriate, the question you raised, mm, is, yeah. is, it, is it appropriate for just the company to be doing the monitoring is, is, is very relevant. Well, so can we, people trust the data? You know, they're, well, they're the ones suffering the dust storms, I presume, you're having here. Yeah, but I, but I guess the answer to your question is, so the company is doing some monitoring, plus the South Australian EPA is also doing some other monitoring, plus there's a community-based station doing another monitoring. So there are actually three different groups yeah. doing monitoring at the moment, and I think that's healthy. Okay. Well, look, this program is about climate action because we're really motivated by the fact of climate change and we have to address it. So I'll talk about the health with other people I'm going to interview today, but what I want to know, Beyond Zero has written a, um, a new report called Rethinking Cement, and one of the ingredients of low carbon cement is fly ash yeah. and apparently there's a, a commission in uh, the UK at the moment looking into the uh, stockpiles they've got of fly ash from their coal-fired power stations which they're phasing out and the BZD people uh, wonder if uh, that assessment is being done here. Can you use the fly ash apart from just covering it with soil and trying to grow trees on it? Could you use it for a new industry about low carbon concrete? Well, uh, cement. Yeah. Potentially, you could, uh, and of course, covering it with with you know sand and dirt and growing trees over the top of it doesn't mean that you can't. Or it leaves you the opportunity to always go back to that flash. It'll always be there. There is also an issue about what's actually in the heap because. Unfortunately, the reality is that what was dumped there 50 and 40 years ago and 30 years ago towards the bottom of the pile is not uh, only fly ash as, as it is on the top of the pile from the last couple of decades. So people would need to be very careful about going into that stockpile about the material. Not only is it appropriate for, for building the, the um, cement products and the, and the building blocks, how do you deal with it in a safe way as well but the principle of using it is fine in fact there's a company that went to the former state government um, 
quite a long time ago and, and I met with them also and I provided all of their information to the government. What they wanted to do in principle sounded great. They want to basically mine the, the waste ash, so help get rid of it, turn it into building blocks. They believed that they had a, a, a very, very good system for doing it at a relatively low cost and making a high quality product. Um, the former state government decided that it did not want to progress with that company, and I don't know exactly why. And I've actually had some discussions recently with the South Australian senator about whether it would be worth um, re-looking at, at that information. I just haven't had the chance to do it yet. Um, but, but of course, if, if that waste material can be used in a productive way, that would be terrific. Yeah. Um, I do know the former state government looked into it, you know, in a very non-political way. Yeah. They decided that that particular proposal was not the one for them, but it doesn't mean that there wouldn't be others uh, that might work. Okay, well, that's good. I'm yeah. glad that you know about that because, you know, we're very keen to see, you know, decarbonisation of manufacturing, yeah. as you're going to have, we'll talk about Wyala in a minute. Um, the... Um, the the headlines about the Gupta, um, uh, Sanjeev Gupta, he, he said he was going to create green metal. He's bought up the Wayala Steelworks and said he'll invest a billion dollars in um, changing it over to um, being powered by renewable energy, which involves, I think, uh, pumped hydro storage. And it all just sounds so exciting in the headlines. But how how is that going? How's that project going? Because that's also in your electorate. Well, it's, it's not actually in my electorate. It's oh. just out outside okay. my, my electorate, but of course I have a, a very, very strong yeah. close well, interest energy in it. Minister, and it's, so, and it's yeah. well within my portfolio responsibility. Yeah. So look, um, GFG Alliance, headed by Sanjeev Gupta, um, uh, have have uh, plans to, to try and be 100% renewable with regard to the electricity they use through the means you talked about with, with uh, pumped hydro. They're also looking at solar thermal and solar plus batteries and all of that would be great. Important to point out that, as I understand it, they want to be 100% renewable at the net. So it doesn't mean that they would not use fossil fuel generated electricity into their, their uh, steelworks but they would compensate that for exporting or generating in a renewable way mm. electricity which they don't use. So if you add up everything they use from both types, you know, they will generate at least as much renewable energy as they consume themselves, mm. but they still will rely on uh, fossil fuel generated electricity from the grid at times mm. to do their work in, mm. in the steelworks. So so that's that's an important thing to understand but that's still a very positive step forward yep. if they are going to offset the fossil fuel electricity they use uh, with surplus generation that they export to the grid that's a good step forward but that to me is illustrative of of the broader challenge that we have we all want as much renewable energy as possible we all want as little pollution as possible we all want electricity to be affordable and reliable but so far and into the into the sort of the foreseeable close future we still will need some non-renewable electricity to just get the jobs done that we expect to have done now for some person that might be um, you know just running their household for another it might be their business that still works of course it's incredibly electricity intensive they just can't shut down and wait 
until it's sunny or windy again if the batteries run out or if the water's been used in, in the, the uh, pumped hydro or whatever it happens to be. They must have that, that backup. So, uh, as I said, that's illustrative of the challenge we've got. And it all revolves around storage, yep. whether it's storage of water in, in, a, in a dam at altitude, whether it's a big chemical battery, whether it's solar thermal, whether it's hydrogen or biofuel or any one of these yep. things. We really, really need to get to the stage that we can rely on the storage of the renewable energy sufficiently to be comfortable to decouple yeah. our connection to the fossil fuel electricity yeah. and and when we can do that we're away that's where we all want to get to but different people of course will have different views about their their uh, their need for electricity one household might say it's okay if the battery's empty we'll manage mm. um, we've got a well insulated freezer and if we go without electricity for a few hours it's okay happy mm. to mm. but another household might have a different view and another business might say as much as we'd like to we cannot do that it would cost us millions and millions of dollars in maintenance to damaged equipment to do that so a whole range of requirements about whether people can wait yeah. for, for, for what the storage delivers. Okay, well, I can still see in South Australia way ahead of the oh, curve yeah, of other no, states. And we're very passionate about it too. We really, really want to get there. Yeah. What do you think about the National um, Energy Guarantee? Um, very poignant topic. Uh, we, we, had, we had COAG in Melbourne on Friday last week. Uh, the, the, the underlying principle of uh, the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, is something I don't think anybody could really uh, argue with. Uh, you know, renewable energy and reliable energy, and it must contribute to lower emissions. So, so that's great. Yeah. Um, but what does that really mean? Well, you some know? people, I was at the conference of smart energy yeah. people, and Oliver Yates, who used to be head of Clean Energy Finance yep. Corporation, so he's, you know, a kind of a conservative and a banker. He mm. said, look, this is going to stymie new development in renewable energy, and I think John Grimes said the same thing. So they're very up in arms about the uh, kibosh it's going to put, the lid it's going to put on uh, all the initiatives that you're seeing here. Yeah, and, and look, w where we got to in COAG was, was an agreement between all the states and the, and the federal government to ask the Energy Security Board to move forward and do the detailed work. Um, it, it wasn't a decision from any state to say we support it or we don't. It was about we support getting more detail. So, I mean, why wouldn't anybody want more information? So that the concerns that have been raised um, and also the, the, the upside that's been proposed as well so they can actually be verified. So we can actually get into the nitty-gritty and find out what does this really mean. Lovely principle, yeah. but what does it really mean? Some people say it would stymie uh, con continued development of renewable energy generation. Other people say that it would stymie the, the building of new gas-fired power plants as well. So there's a range of different views. I'm, I'm just trying to keep an open mind until I see the detail. Mm. And, you know, for me, we need to have affordable electricity in South Australia. We, unfortunately, have the most expensive and the least reliable electricity in the state at the same time as we've had the greatest progress with regard to renewable yeah. energy generation. Now, I don't blame renewable energy generation yeah. for that, but I, but I do blame... Uh, too much renewable energy generation without storage for that and 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 my responsibility as an energy minister is is on behalf of the people of south australia to take a short middle and long-term view now the long-term view of course involves far less pollution ideally 100 percent renewables but the short-term view 
includes an obligation to make sure that our households and our families and our employing businesses can pay their electricity bills and there are many at the moment that can't. So we need to get the mix right. We need to, to be able to harness renewable energy with small household storage and very, very large grid-scale storage so that it can deliver affordable, reliable electricity. Well, well, I just, what are you going to do differently than the last governor? Are you going to um, put more resources into storage? You know, okay. those pumped hydros that, for example, are quite, there's quite a few places you yep. could have them here. Two, two key differences. There are, there are several, but two key differences between us and the former government in South Australia. One is we're addressing in our policies and our funding, our costed policies, uh, d- the demand side of the equation. The former government did nothing on demand. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to to reduce demand and or smarten demand up and that has to do with uh, with demand aggregation uh, and, and giving individual consumers the tools they need to be able to work with their demand because one of the keys to this is taking just a slice off the top of the peak energy demand just a slice off the top Mm. takes enormous enormous pressure off the wholesale price of electricity which then flows through to better prices for for consumers so we've actually got 30 million dollars set aside to partner with with industry uh, with academic institutions with with green organizations for those technology trials to give customers the tools they need so that they can adjust their demand to reduce their prices and take the load off the system the other key difference that that, that we've focused on is storage uh, we actually have 50 million dollars set aside for large grid scale storage now storage could be a large battery it could be pumped hydro, it could be solar thermal. We're not offering $50 million towards one project just to make it happen. We have that money that might go to two or three or four projects that, that just to help them get over the line. Good projects that were nearly there, that the proponents just couldn't make the cost-benefit analysis work. But if we can contribute some taxpayer money, because there are benefits to the taxpayer that the company's cost-benefit analysis didn't include, yep. then we will do that. We have another $100 million set aside to support the purchase by households of small-scale household batteries and our figures show that uh, we, we have the funds to support 40,000 households in South Australia, which is nearly 20% of the, the rooftop solar in South Australia, and that allows those households to store their energy from peak generation early afternoon through to peak demand early evening, and then take the pressure off the system at peak demand early evening, and that then delivers cheaper prices to everybody in the state, not only those people that have the batteries and the solar, but to all other consumers as well. Okay. Well, we must finish soon. I can see. I feel like I'm in a cabinet meeting. You can see Dan is very, very informed about all this. I love this stuff. It's really we. we, (laughs) I can see you do. We need to agree on where we need to get to, and then just find the best way to get there. I just want to change the subject a little bit. I've just travelled through a beautiful landscape, very arid, loads of wind turbines. For BZD listeners, honestly, it was absolute paradise to see thousands of them along the hills there. I think it's Snowtown that I'm must have been passing through and so that was beautiful beautiful country but i wonder how is climate change affecting people and even animals 
biodiversity here in this arid landscape and I know the rainfall is falling you know in southern southeastern Australia so how's it affecting people and animals in your knowledge? Well, look, again, I'm not an environmental scientist, but, but look, I, I'm sort of hands-on and I get out and yep. about a lot, not just in towns, but out, out in the outback. I mean, our electorate stretches another, nearly another thousand k's from here. So, so, um, so I, I, as a lay person, I consider myself yep. reasonably familiar. Um, it's always been an arid landscape, but it is changing. I, I'd be quite open with you. I, I shy away from the climate change argument because all it does mm. in my position is really it's incites arguments one way or the other the view i take is whether the climate is changing or not we must reduce pollution we just that to me seems so straightforward if climate change happened to be proven to be completely um not happening or the theory is wrong if if that were the case i would still advocate for still reduce pollution so that's what i concentrate on with with my my desire to get to 100% yeah. renewable energy. With regard to, to land and animals, we've actually gone through an especially dry summer, um, as well as cycles you know, within seasons and from season to season. We do tend to go in longer term cycles in the north of the state as well. And I remember you know, all the way through the early 2000s was a very, very tough time for croppers uh, in the part of Adelaide, sort of immediately north of, of sorry, the part of South Australia, immediately north of Adelaide, and also graziers all the way through to the territory. I hope not, but we are looking like the weather was back then as well at the beginning of that period. But of course, that was followed by massive rains, and you know, Lake Eyre was filled three times in I think seven years, which is unheard of and there's water coming down the Cooper Creek at the moment from uh, you know the Longreach Windora area which we hope will fill up the Kunji Lakes and, and get to Lake Eyre again so it's a really hard thing to pick you know there's, there's there are stock being sold to be moved on because there's not enough for them to eat at exactly the same time as it looks like we might get water in Lake Eyre so it, it is a really hard thing for, for me to pick I was listening to the ABC this morning and they were talking about uh, quolls being reintroduced into the Flinders Ranges and they are doing better in, in this recent dry spell than, uh, than, than both rabbits and kangaroos. So, you know, a feral animal yeah. and a native animal, the quolls are doing really well. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's always going to be ups and downs but it's dry at the moment. There's no doubt about that. Okay. Thank you very much. We've just been speaking to the Energy Minister for South Australia, the Honourable Dan Van Holst-Pelikan, who's a friend of this program. We've spoken to you many times, Dan, and I'm glad to see you now in your, your environment. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it, Vivian, and be pleased to talk anytime. Brett Prentice was on the 7.30 report into the dust problem in Port Augusta. If you didn't catch it, he's in a group called Dust Busters and he previously was a worker for 29 years in Port Augusta at the Northern Power Station. Now that power station has now been blown up. I saw a YouTube of the power stack just coming down or the, the next door one and so th They've been decommissioned and Brett is no longer working there, but he, he is taking up with the community this issue of the dust coming off the ash dams. It's nice to meet you, Brett. How is your campaign going? Um, slowly. We're, I think we're making some headways with trying to uh, put pressure on um, the EPA and the government to try and get uh, Flinders Power to do uh, what we think is the right thing. 
Um, you, you worked for Alinta's Northern Power Station and now it's been closed. Um, how did this transition affect your life? Well, obviously, working in a place for 29 years, you, it's, it was a great place to work. Uh, there was a real family atmosphere there um, and has been a big transition. I've uh, moved on to other things, um, other things in my life. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I feel fortunate that I worked there for that long, longer period of time, but uh, at the same time, I've moved on. But was it a surprise to you when they closed down? Were you anticipating to leave that workforce then? I know, um, as... Alinta uh, had told us, um, I think it was 2025 was when they were expecting to uh, close down. Um, then Jeff Demery came along and said that uh, we were going to close down, I think, uh, 2018 or something, up to 2015, 2016. Uh, yeah, 2018 was the longest we was going to run for. And then he came back and said, no, we're going to close down on uh, 2015. Okay, well, you showed me a map, a Google Earth map of that ash dam. It's a mm-hmm. massive thing. It looks to me like a great big salt pan, listeners, but it's not. It's full of ash. And the company that's now called Flinders Power, taken over from Alinta, they, they said they're going to clean it up. But who will really pay for it? And is this the world's best practice that they're putting into place now? Yes, it is a large ash dam. Um, other power companies tend to... Uh, uh, fix up their ash dams as they go along but this has just been on top of a, a salt pan um, and it's just been piling up and up the ash and they just build up the levee banks so now their uh, remediation is to put 150 millimetres of dirt on top and put some seeds uh, spread some seeds around and hopefully it grows and uh, stops the dust problems that we're having right now uh, but it's been that way for 12, 18 months and they, we're still having those dust problems. The the rainfall in Port Augusta is, is very low, so it means that uh, any growth is very small. And, and when you go out and have a look at the site, the ash dam, um, there is very few plant growth and it's going to be a long, long time before there's enough growth there to stop the dust problems. Do you believe they could have done it better or they shouldn't have done it even at all? I guess the ideal situation would be to remove that ash altogether um, and I'm not sure what they would do with it. Um, But going on um, other power stations in New South Wales and Victoria that have closed down, uh, their remediation is very much different to the Port Augusta remediation. For some reason, EPA here all have the same... EPA across Australia all have the same guidelines, but the EPA here is elected to uh, let Flinders do a very much basic uh, remediation of the site and I think that shows with the continuing dust issues that we're having um, yeah, and yeah, for years to come we're going to have that issue Well we saw on the 7.30 report the um, owner of Alinta Jeff Dimery, he said something about irrigation, the question was why don't you irrigate that and so that until at least the seeds grow and, and uh, he hummed and hard and I think the end result was that it was far too expensive but surely this is an essential thing for you because you're breathing in that dust downwind in Port Augusta that's right Um, this is all man-made dust it's not natural dust that we have blown around normally so yeah um, there has to be other solutions um, to this issue and just to put some seeds and say yeah they'll grow sooner or later when we have some rain I don't think that's suitable there's other um, ways of doing it there's um, a wastewater plant that's close by that uh, that water uh, goes into the gulf so i'm not sure why they can't 
divert that water onto um, some sort of irrigation. I know it's not going to be cheap, but at the same time, Flinders Power has says safety is their main concern, so I don't think <laughs> letting the dust blow all over Port Augusta is very safe. No. Well, Beyond Zero Emissions is interested in decarbonising, you know, at full pelt, really, and so they're researching every aspect of that. And one of them is the Rethinking Cement report that we've just published recently. And one of the cement types, I pricked up my ears when I heard that this is fly ash here because one of them is using fly ash. I don't think it's necessarily high quality cement but it might be for the slab of a house, you know, maybe fly ash differs in different places but could you use the fly ash from this big stockpile here to make a new business like cement business? Well I guess that's possible. Um, The ash um, the, the fly ash from the site was uh, went to um, Adelaide Brighton Cement in Adelaide to make concrete. Um, the ash also went to Roxby Downs and they used it there. The, I know there was roads at the power station that were made from the ash um, as a base material. So I guess all those things have all proven to be suitable, so there's no reason that uh, they couldn't look into that. So there's no reason, but why haven't they done that? Because you think there'd be money in it for them. Well, I think Flinders just wants to cover up the problem and walk away. They just want to put that 150 millimetres of dirt, put some seeds on there and say, job done, and the EPA are going to let them do it. And the state government, uh, who are uh, controlling the EPA, are just going to let them do it. I'm not sure why that is. OK. All right. Well, look, I'm talking to Brett Prentice, who worked at the power station, and he's now in this group trying to stop the dust which is affecting people's lungs and making it very hard for a lot of people to breathe and it's just very unpleasant and it shouldn't be happening because the company's wanting to said they would remediate but what else on another level this transition you've been through in your working life from working in a coal-fired power station to now seeing coal uh, solar thermal coming up down the road and as the mayor said all these 11 projects is going to be this renewable hub you'll be living in the middle of it what's that been like for you is that sort of exciting for you and the people you know Yes, it is very exciting to know that uh, we've always been a, a, a power city right from the early 50s when uh, A station, power station started generating electricity for South Australia. So now it's great to see that we're going away from uh, coal-fired power stations to uh, renewable energy, which is nice and green, and Port Augusta is still a, a centre for making electricity for the rest of South Australia. Thanks very much. So that's Brett Prentice, and if you'd like to see the 7.30 report, do you know the name of it? I think it's dust, probably. It was recently on the ABC. Yeah. Thanks very much. Cyclones dust is pretty grim. Shocking. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. BZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide. Literally. Okay, Dr. David Shearman is the Secretary of Doctors for the Environment Australia and he's on the phone from Adelaide to tell us about the campaign to transition the town of Port Augusta from supplying 40% of South Australia's, Australia's power with coal and building a 24-hour solar power plant now. 
So we're very honoured, David, to have you on the Beyond Zero Emission show. Could you tell us first how the health at Port Augusta made this transition urgent? You were at that first public meeting. Yes, yes. The, the first public meeting was held in um, 2011. And um, I was speaking on behalf of the doctors, Doctors for the Environment. And at that meeting, we explained to the community that their health over the past 20 years, their health problems, indeed many of them were due to the coal-fired power station. If you, if you walk in the center of town, you could smell it all the time. And you could see the smoke coming out of the stack from anywhere else in the town. Uh, the incidence of cancer of the lung was twice what it is elsewhere in South Australia. Uh, the incidence of asthma in children was the highest in the state. And Port Augustans have put up with this because they realized that the state had to be provided with electricity. There was no alternative. So in 2010, we had a community meeting with 150 people there from unions, uh, state employees, community groups, to tell them about their health and tell them that there was an alternative. Well, how did it help to have Beyond Zero Emissions there with a solution? Well, yes, what we went in with, and it amazes me no government has learned from this, we went in with a, a program uh, of, of four groups. The first one was DA, talking about the health. The second one was BZE. Mark O explained that all this could be run without a health impact on, uh, by using solar thermal technology. The Conservation of Council of South Australia explained what it was doing to the environment in general. And then the great mad Joy Baluch was speaking <laughs> on our behalf and saying, this is what we must do. Well, she was the mayor of Port Augusta, and I've recently been up there, and there's a lovely portrait of her in yes. the mayoral chambers. She, she was just fantastic. Now, I used to sit in her office. This was the start of the thing. And we, we'd plan how we could get these health uh, problems to the community and explain them to them. And uh, she carried all her leaflets in our office, and as people came in with an inquiry about anything else, they were given one. So it was a dedicated campaign with a solution. And it just amazes me now. I've been amazed, really, with the problem in the, in the Victorian coal fields where the community, the unions, are opposed closing the coal-fired power station, which is affecting their health, mm. and badly affecting their health, according to our research and the literature. Well, that takes us to the government level. Although you had briefings in the state parliament, you never met the health minister and you said at the Senate inquiry that government had failed to show any urgency in adopting alternative forms of power and the health problem was urgent for the people of Port Augusta. So what message do you have now for our national government who is trying to prolong the life of coal-fired power stations, for example at Liddell, rather than having a clear retirement plan for each power station? Well... It's unconscionable. It's totally unacceptable. And I could use stronger words. I mean, they want to prolong Liddell 
and we can estimate with very good statistics that the extra five years that Liddell will continue working will cost 88 deaths and so many illnesses during that five years around the power station. Now, the government now wants to prolong it further. And, of course, that means more deaths. Now, I think AGL is correct in that the soonest they can close it is 22, mm. because that's the gate time it has to be required to find alternative renewable energy. So we have looked at the AGL plans, and they stack up to us, and they stack up to many experts. And what the government is doing just appalls me. Mm. Well, what is wrong with the way that air quality data was gathered at Port Augusta? And then more generally, because I think this connection between the number of deaths or the number of respiratory illnesses around those coal-fired power stations and the coal mines needs to be much more front of mind. Well, yes. Well, the, the air quality data in Australia is another disaster in that it's, it's not necessarily recorded at the, at the, where it is worst, where it might affect people most. That's the first thing. Secondly, the standards that are recorded are not even up to World Health Organization standards. So we're at the bottom of the pile um, in most developed countries, um, apart from the Trumpism in the United States, which is re relaxing their regulations. But... Um, but that's the situation. So we can't rely on that because some of it isn't accurate. And, and secondly, we have a great problem in the way the states manage this because they're the people who have to look after it. And, and we think that some of these decisions are unduly influenced by uh, industry, which wouldn't surprise you. Yes. So that's a sad story of people dying and having illness from coal-fired power stations. Yes, well, even in the rehabilitation phase, it sounds like the air pollution isn't really reliably gathered. And let me make one thing clear, that the air pollution from the coal-fired power station was toxic in that it contained carcinogens, particulates, and caused all the disease there. Now, what's happening now at Port Augusta is that there is dust, and it's blowing off the covered ash pile from the defunct coal-fired power station, uh, that is not toxic. It's simply a dust problem. So it hasn't got toxics in it. It's a problem that can easily be solved by putting a larger, deeper layer of soil on top of the ash, and that will have to be done. I, I still was worried that why is the data not being gathered by a neutral source? Because at, at the moment the rehabilitation is being monitored by the EPA, by the yes. company and by a Greenpeace community group. So really it seems like you need to have a, a completely authoritative third party who's neutral who's going to be collecting the data, especially if doctors need that immediately Yes, yes. need it to well, be transparent. Well, yes, well, that, that is true. Uh, let me just say the collection of uh, an anal analysis of these uh, uh, dust in Port Augusta and anywhere else like that is difficult. It's a difficult task. And you need to have recognized analysts who are technically correct in doing certain things. So 
there is suspicion at various levels. At the company levels, there's always a worry that they're not doing it properly and not paying attention because it costs them money. Uh, the EPA does it properly, but it's limited in the amount it can do because each setup of a small station requires time and money. Uh, and when, when a community group does it, I don't know about Greenpeace, I haven't seen their data, but it's, it's inevitably, or nearly always, I should say, inaccurate mm. because they don't have the expertise. Well, I've met around Australia, not just from Port Augusta, but I've met a lot of people who are very upset by the Environment Protection Authorities in various jurisdictions, and they say they're toothless, they're yes. not on time, and, and they're not really protecting the environment. No. And uh, also I wonder about health departments, because in your story, in this case of Port Augusta, I wonder how come it was just a small group of doctors from, you know, who are doing this out of hours, using their time off, of um, working in hospitals to be the medical group who would turn around a public health disaster that was being reported to the state government, reported to the EPA, and it took you, your group, and the others there that you mentioned to sort of persevere and push it, and now that health, I hope the health has improved there. Yes, well, the, the story is that this could be done in relation to any coal-fired power station. We were in at the beginning, we got all the information out, we attended Parliament House and we lobbied every member of Parliament. We spoke at the Parliamentary Committee. We harnessed the support of the AMA, the College of General Practitioners. Everything eventually brought about this change with the support of the community. Now, there's absolutely no reason, in my view, why that sort of program shouldn't start on every coal-fired power station about five years before the expected closure. And then there is time to turn it around with everybody on, on site and everybody supporting the program. So that's the way to do it. You know, we could organize, I'm being facetious now, groups to go and camp in these places if there was no money and run the thing for governments because they're not capable of it. Mm. Well, okay, well, look, President Macron of France is talking climate action to our government at the moment and yet we are not bound by any treaty to reduce our export of coal and gas. The President of Kiribati and the Prime Minister of New Zealand in 2015, you know, begged Australia to stop subsidising coal and, the, you know, Kiribati especially is very much in the front line of this, begged us, but no response. And what is, what is the feeling of doctors when they hear about this, opening up new coal mines and opening up new gas wells, for example? Exasperation. Uh, as, as I said in the media recently, we are burning the lives of our children. The, the climate and the impacts on this, on their health and lives, will be so great. We, in fact, by taking only moderate sacrifices now, and none in Australia in particular, but other countries are, by taking those small sacrifices now, we would provide a future for them. And that's why we are angry, very angry with governments for not getting on with this. Why can we not, as the most wealthy country in the world, not offer leadership and show that we can do more than others? to bring down these world emissions. It's just, it's just unconscionable. Thank you. So I hope the listeners will take on board this statement by Dr. David Shearman there and 
believe me, Doctors for the Environment, they have the most impressive pamphlet. There are Nobel Peace Prize winners, you know, um, all scientists in their advisory committee and many, many very devoted people out there trying to influence the public and the public do believe doctors. So I think this voice has got to be heard and uh, thank you very much for talking to us. My pleasure. Now we're speaking to Dan Spencer. He has played a big part in the campaign to repower Port Augusta and he originally was with a group called AYCC, Australian Youth Climate Change Campaign, and now he's with Solar Citizens. So you can see he's interested in this whole renewable energy transition that we have to have, and he has been part of that story in South Australia that has now come to a really good conclusion. So welcome, Dan. G'day, how are you going? Very good. Just tell us for the record the story of what happened. You know, that it started with a community that was getting very bad health outcomes, as we've heard from Dr. Sherman. What was your point of view when you were living there? Yeah, so the Portacosta community was, I guess, the powerhouse for South Australia for a very long time. And that, as uh, Dr. Sherman has spoken about, uh, led to a number of health issues associated with the coal station, but also a lot of long-term jobs. And so when it started looking like the power station was, you know, the future of the power station was uncertain, there was a national debate happening on climate change. Um, and at the same time, this idea of a solar thermal plant had been talked about in Port Augusta. A group of local people came together and wanted to to start a campaign which ended up being called Repower Port Augusta to try to get the state and federal government to back building a solar thermal plant in Port Augusta and I got involved um, and moved from Adelaide to Port Augusta for a little while to work with the group and yeah over uh, five or almost six years after that we organised all sorts of activities, education in the community, um, built alliances um, with local unions, the council, um, politicians, local business, doctors, um, all sorts of different people in the community to get behind this push. Tell us a bit more about that, unpack that a bit, how you built alliances, for example, with the union. How did they take it? Yeah, so I think what was really positive about this story was that once solar thermal is built, there will be a lot of ongoing jobs, and um, as well as that, it will provide day and night solar power, which is something, obviously, we need if we're going to move beyond coal and gas. So I think the long-term jobs were really attractive for the unions, and they could see that, you know, while the power station was there for a long time, and sadly, Alinta didn't really tell the truth about how long the power station was going to be open. Um, they'd said that it was going to stay open until 2030. Despite this, people knew at some point those power stations were going to close, and something needed to be built in its place and you know that I guess that opportunity excited the unions to 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 get on board which was really positive and it was just about having those conversations and and finding I guess common ground you know with with all of the groups in the repower alliance we wouldn't necessarily agree on on every single thing but that was that was okay. I, I I feel when I was in South Australia just recently I feel that people are a bit more progressive there are not so many obstacles in the way of this sort of transition and maybe someone said to me oh well it's because we don't have coal and like New South Wales is absolutely you know held to ransom by the wealth of coal that we've got and we've always had it and Victoria to a certain extent down with Hazelwood there's retiring ageing coal-fired power plants all over the country that need to know the blueprint and Dr Sherman said they should just have a national project like a national rollout this sort of standard strategy of 
like what you did. So what were the key things that you think, you know, there must have been turning points when where you thought it would never happen and then it now has mm. happened. Yeah, I think... Well, there were there were a lot of turning points. I think when industry uh, started to get on board and say that they wanted to build the solar thermal plant, that ended up being solar reserve. That was a major turning point because it went beyond you know the community saying they wanted it, and there was a really viable prospect. And in South Australia, sadly, all that electricity is and energy is privatised, so that that was a key part. But also, you know, things that were way outside of our control, like the. Um, the statewide blackout, sadly, you know, despite that having nothing to do with renewable energy, it did really put a rocket under the state government uh, where they just went, right, we've, we've got to do something. You know, we're getting smashed by Canberra at the moment and people are attacking us. So, you know, that led to them, you know, doing things like the big battery that we've now got in place and eventually the solar thermal plant as well. So, you know, there was all sorts of turning points. And although South Australia doesn't have... Or, you know, we had a had a small coal industry. We do have a massive gas industry. So, yeah, we don't have the same challenges um, as as the eastern states, and you know that allows us to be a bit of a test bed for these new yeah. technologies. Well, but, just um, very yeah. quickly to finish, Dan, what do you think? With you've got a new government now. You've had movement mm. from Jay Weatherall's Labor Party, and now we've got a, a Liberal Party government. Is that going to blow things down? Uh, no. So the, so the contract for solar thermal is signed and all locked in, and and it's also had support from the federal coalition, which is good. The, they've committed funding to the project, and the details there are being finalised. And of course, uh, Dan Van Holst. Pelican, who's the local Liberal MP in the Port Augusta area. He's the new Minister for Energy and he's been a long long supporter of this project. So uh, for solar thermal, the new government isn't, you know, they support it. So okay. um, we've actually got bipartisanship around solar thermal, which oh, is good. Hooray. Okay. Well, this is a success story and I know that people around the country do listen to our podcasts and I think they want to know, like, that it has achieved, been achieved somewhere, so you're the first place where it will have been achieved. Yeah, exactly, and there's lots of lessons to learn, but I think one of the one of the big things was um, the power of community people coming together and, and really pushing for something and, and persisting. Like it, it, is a, it can be a hard road, but we got there in the end, and hopefully that inspires other people to get involved in the community. Yeah, yeah. So that was Dan Spencer speaking to us from Adelaide, and he's with Solar Citizens. Thank you, Dan. No worries. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I'm Andy. Uh, quick thanks to our guests, the SA Minister for Energy, Dan Van Hulse Pelican, campaigner and power plant worker, Brett Prentice, Dr. David Shearman, and Dan Spencer. Thanks to Martin Zarvin and Michael Lord, who briefed Vivian for this show. Uh, after the break, we're staying at Port Augusta to hear about the future Vivian talks to Daniel Thompson and the company Solar Reserve, who are building the new 24-hour solar plant, and the Mayor of Port Augusta, Sam Johnson. We hope you can stay tuned for the next half an hour. Keep listening to 3CR. the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. In the next part, we'll talk to Solar Reserve's Daniel Thompson and also to the Mayor of Port Augusta, Sam Johnson, 
They're both telling you now about the future of energy in South Australia and it's all in this huge hub at Port Augusta. The first speaker is Daniel Thompson representing Solar Reserve and speaking to us from Perth. The old coal-fired power stations provided South Australia with 40% of their energy and it's very well grid-connected there. So will the Aurora plant replace that? Look, it won't replace the uh, the existing northern power station, but it will um, it will supplement the electricity supply in, in South Australia. And, and really, what the project is about is is about in, embedding more dispatchable renewable energy into into South Australia and um, transitioning from from existing fossil fuel technologies to clean renewable technologies. And this particular project will go some way to to uh, to, to that transition. Um, our project at Port Augusta um, is 150 megawatts in capacity and over the course of a year we'll supply roughly 5% of South Australia's electricity requirements. Okay. Um, well, Beyond Zero Emissions was um, part of a, a movement to get this to happen and uh, we published a report back in 2011 called Repower Port Augusta and I think they, they estimated a lot more of those concentrated solar thermal plants would be needed plus some wind. Uh, are you planning to build any more if this is successful? Absolutely, yeah. We, um, we've been very vocal about our plans to develop around six of these projects in South Australia over the next decade. Uh, so we really see Aurora as project number one of a pipeline of projects that we want to pursue in the state. Uh, and what's important about this project is it'll, it'll go a long way into establishing the supply chain that'll, um, that'll be used to develop those future projects. So, uh, it's a great example of, um, of that transition from, from coal to renewable insofar as a lot of the, the, um, the jobs that we employ on our facility, particularly during the operation and maintenance phase, are the same sort of jobs that a coal power station, for instance, would employ. Uh, and there's a lot of links to, to manufacturing as well. We, we have a lot of, a lot of concrete, a lot of steel, a lot of glass, and a lot of things that can be made within within the state. So we uh, we see some tremendous opportunities for South Australia from from this project. Ah, oh, that was going to be my next question about the jobs. I think there's a pressing need to maintain employment in that region, and I'd like to know what sort of jobs are involved in in this project. It sounds like a completely new thing, you know. And will there be other spin-offs, you know, in other manufacturing and so on? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, we really um, describe the jobs in, in two phases. So there's construction jobs and then there's operation and maintenance jobs. In the construction phase, um, we'll have uh, more than a 1,000 people on site at the, at the peak of construction. So it's a very busy um, construction site covering the full spectrum of, of um, sort of roles that might be required to build a project like this from um, from civil sort of roles, um, you know, earthworks and, and whatnot to, uh, to electrical installation roles. Um, you know, we, we have... Fencing, we have um, um, steel, we have concrete. There's a lot of kind of heavy construction uh, roles that are that are associated with the construction phase, and, and we'll look um, through our EPC contract to try and engage as much local content in that phase as possible. And then when we move into the operations phase, we've got um, we've got a, a large um, power station at the end of the day, so we uh, will em- employ a lot of the same sort of roles as uh, conventional power stations. So power station controllers, electrical and mechanical fitters. And then we've got a few bespoke jobs that are quite unique to our technology, such as um, you know um, operators that'll um, that'll be responsible for cleaning the cleaning the mirrors, cleaning the heliostats, and um, and those sort of very unique jobs to this tech technology. Okay, how big are the heliostats? Just a picture, or can you picture this place for the listeners? 
Yeah, absolutely. So there, we'll, we'll have more than 12,000 of them, and each one is around 96 square metres in size. So if you, if you imagine 10 metres by 10 metres, just for, for sort of round numbers, uh, which roughly equates to half the size of a tennis court, and then you think about half the size of a tennis court and multiply that by 12,000, you get some sort of perspective of how big this thing is going to be. Uh, so it's a very large facility, and we've got a lot of a lot of mirrors uh, reflecting the sun onto the onto the top of the tower, which is how we collect and, uh, and are able to store um, energy from the sun. Okay. Well, look, intermittency is a word that seems to be enough to damn renewable energy in some people's eyes. They just go, "Oh, the sun doesn't shine here all the time, and the wind, and all that." But you hear these kind of people talking like that, and it's as if that's the end of the discussion. So, tell us how you can guarantee power twenty four seven throughout the year. Because you have the storage. Yeah. So, so intermittency is probably not the not the correct word because intermittency suggests sort of on or off, which is not what traditional renewables like wind and solar do. They they're variable renewables, so they they do vary their their output depending on the the wind or the sun at that point in time. Um, whereas we have a very different technology. We still have the same same uh, resource that we're we're uh, we're dealing with. We're dealing with the sun, which has clouds that they come over and and vary the amount of sunlight that, that falls on our facility. But the way that we're able to address that variability is really through storage. So we reflect the sun onto uh, onto a top of a very tall tower, and and when I say tall, I'm talking about a tower that's uh, around 240 meters tall. So you know, um, it's a very tall structure in its own right, and we um, we reflect. That sun from those twelve thousand heliostats, those mirror arrays onto the top of that tower, which um, enables us to heat a fluid up um, to a very, very high temperature. And that fluid, in our case, is molten salt. So we store that, um, that we capture that energy in heat in that molten salt, and then we store it in a big tank, and uh, we can store it for a very long period of time. And when we need electricity, we um, we take that molten salt and we put it through a heat exchanger and. Uh, put water into that heat exchanger and create superheated steam that powers a conventional steam turbine. But what that enables us to do is having that massive, effectively lava of really hot molten salt there uh, means that we can provide power even after the sun, sun's gone down. We've got effectively a, a big battery of sorts um, that, that enables us to provide power whenever it's needed most by, by the network. So we can provide a block of power you know, in the evening, in the morning, you know, in the middle of the day, whenever it's really required, and that's um, that's quite unique about the technology. Well, can that heat be used for anything else? Look, it can be. Um, we use it in this case for um, for power generation, but there there are applications that are being being looked at by other companies um, to use that heat in industrial processes. And a lot of uh, industrial processes use steam, for instance, um, not necessarily for power, but for for other things. Um, so. You know, our technology could be used for that as well. Just we focus at the moment on on the, the power generation side yeah. of utilising that well, thing. Yeah, that's the most urgent at the moment to transition our whole, um, you know, energy supply. So, how does the cost compare, and how about the environmental impact? Considering the alternative might be battery storage. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as the economic stand at the moment. Um, it, it is a different uh, different price point to to batteries in a, in a favourable way at the same scale. So we uh, we have huge amount of storage, and to to have that amount of storage with batteries would be an extremely expensive proposition. However, batteries do have a role in the market, um, and they uh, have a role for for very fast acting um, response. Whereas our technology, that bulk storage that we uh, we have from our facility, enables us to really um, have a lot more. Uh, Dispatchability, a lot more um, movement with when we generate that electricity into the market. So we 
we certainly aren't against batteries, but they have a different place in the market. But on an economics point of view, at the moment, um, our storage technology is, is at a much, much more competitive price point. Compared to existing technologies, um, you know, we can't see uh, a case where new coal will be built in Australia in the, in the future. There's a, a lot of market risk around new coal. Uh, but putting that aside, purely based on economics, um, this technology is, is cheaper than, that, than coal over the, over the life of the project because we don't have any fuel costs. Our fuel is the sun and that, uh, that comes for free. Yeah, and I imagine the environmental impact after you've laid all that concrete and so on, but the environmental impact, molten salt, it's salt's just a well-known quantity compared to the elements in a battery. Yeah, look, uh, absolutely. So we, um, once we've got our facility constructed, there's almost negligible environmental impact. We uh, don't have any emissions from our facility, and as you correctly point out, you know, um, salt is, is something that's kind of natural to the environment. Our particular salt is very, very pure. It's actually um, sodium and potassium nitrate, so it's better described as kind of high-grade fertilizer rather than sort of the salt that you sprinkle on your fish and chips. And as an interesting anecdote, um, when our when the demonstration project of this technology was decommissioned back in the 90s, they actually sold the um, the salt off to the local farming community to sprinkle on on their crops. So it's got a very nice kind of uh, story at the at the end of life as well. Okay, so it becomes fertilizer in the end. Exactly. Okay, well, look, the mayor told me that Port Augusta, I was just up there last week, and he said they will become the renewable hub for South Australia. And he said there were many projects in the pipeline. I wonder, can you tell me a bit more as you're going to be investing in that region? Yeah, absolutely. So there are um, you know, a strong focus area for a lot of um, renewable energy developers at the moment. And, and it's really no surprise. It's, a, it's an area with an incredible solar resource. It's got a, a great wind resource. Uh, it's got a major electricity node in the state, got good transport links, and, and importantly, a community that's very supportive of renewable energy. So we, we are across um, the variety of projects that are under development there, and, and it's a full spectrum. There's, there's, uh, there's a wind farm, there's a number of solar PV facilities, there's wind and solar um, PV mixed together, there's pumped hydro using both freshwater and seawater, and then there's our project using um, concentrating solar power with, uh, with storage. So full spectrum of projects and a very exciting time for the, for the people of Port Augusta with, uh, with all this investment and, uh, and job creation from these projects in the region. When, when will it be up and running? So our intention for this project is to start construction this year and uh, it'll be about a 30 month construction period. Uh, which will take us to the back end of 2020 uh, for when it's uh, up and running. So, yeah, all going well. We'll, we'll have this thing online um, end of 2020. Well, when Aurora is up and running, how will it, how cost competitive will it be to the conventional power? Look, very. However, with that said, our, our contractual arrangement is directly with the South Australian government. So this particular facility will be used to supply schools, hospitals, police stations, government buildings and the like. Um, so we have, we were successful in winning a, a contract with the South Australian government and that has given them price certainty uh, on their electricity for, for a period of 20 years from when this thing, uh, when our Aurora project is, is operational. But the side point to that is that because our technology supplies electricity into the into the times when the market needs it the most, it will have a, an effect on pressing that wholesale market price that brings them down with pressure on electricity prices, which will be, I'm sure, a pretty broader South Australian electricity users. So you mean when people go home and even if they've got solar panels on their roof, their electricity has to be supplied from the grid, that'll be when your power is coming into its own. Exactly, yep. So that, that will put a downward, a downward effect on the on the power prices with retailers then go and purchase from the market then ultimately flows through to, to customers through their retailers. So the more of these sort of projects that can provide electricity into that peak of the market, the lower that wholesale price will be.
people get at those times. So it yeah, really encourages projects like ours and, and others that, that can supply at the times when it's needed most sort of go forward. Yeah, well, you're, you're sounding so positive, but uh, a lot of the people I interview, I mean, my approach of Beyond Zero Emissions, you know, our big driver is climate change and I'm interviewing everyone I can who's into climate action but at the moment Australia is nowhere near 100% renewable energy and we had a visitor um, reported in the paper the other day called Yosef Abramovitz who is called Captain Sunshine um, he was quoted in the paper saying the time is now to scale up and the public needs to show more green audacity I don't know what that is but can you see a swift transition to 100% renewables in Australia given that we've got such excessive amounts of sun sadly not I think that's a amazing target for Australia to have but you know it does it is going to require a, um, a very strong will by both federal and state uh, politicians to, to get there the community can certainly um, sway that thinking and there's, uh, there's, uh, there's certainly countries around the world that are pushing to that. We do have amazing uh, renewable resources in Australia, so there's no reason that ultimately we can't get there. But at the moment, we've got uh, we've got a lot of existing infrastructure that's been constructed that still has quite considerable useful life. And I think what we'll see is as some of that existing infrastructure, so coal, gas, power stations, reaches at the end of its useful life, or alternatively is placed from the market by um, by uh, market signals, so pricing, for instance. Uh, what we'll see is more renewable energy kind of entering the market to take the place of that. So I, I sort of envisage over the next sort of few decades that the percentage of renewable energy will continue to track track strongly, increasing the the penetration. But to get to that hundred percent is going to take a, it's going to take a real push by not only the community but by the politicians as well. Cyclones is pretty green. Shock Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. BZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. Now I'm at the Port Augusta Council Chambers and I'm going to speak to the Mayor. His name is Sam Johnson. We used to broadcast about this town when the late Joy Baluk was Mayor and apparently she would terrify government ministers who did not see the urgency of a transition to renewable energy as she did. Now with you've got Solar Reserve coming here to build a large concentrated solar thermal plant. I think they're going to have it built by 2019, yep. supplying the grid. I'd like to know how does it feel now to be the mayor? It's, a, it's an interesting time but an exciting time. Obviously, when I first came to the role in, in 2013, I didn't anticipate such rapid change that, that would happen in Port Augusta. We all believed that one day, yes, the coal fire power station would come to an end. We didn't think it would happen as quickly as, as what it would and being within that short period of time. And to give an example of why we didn't think that, in February 2015, Alinta stood here in this council chamber and gave a, a very public presentation to a public gallery in the council and said we'll be here to 2025 and that gave us an indication that we had about 15 years to transition but we need to do something again and credit to my predecessor who entered local government in the 1970s out of sheer hate of the coal-fired power station <laughs> and obviously she wanted the transition to something else as did the community but we wanted to do it in a, in a very static transition way that Knowing that Alinta had said they were here till 2025, we knew we had 10, 15 years at best mm. to actually do that. And, and council and the community more so 
had started that process. They were looking at other options and solar thermal was obviously one of those flagship opportunities that was out there and, and was developing technology. What we then didn't anticipate is three months later, May 2015, <laughs> to read the headlines that that closure was no longer 2025, it was actually nine months from, from May in 2015. So that, that was something I didn't anticipate and expect. It's an unfortunate event that has occurred to happen so quick and more so without the appropriate transition. That's probably where the frustration stems from the community and rightfully so it should stem from about that lack of transition that was provided to us. But it's also equally provided us one of the greatest opportunities if we try and look at the positives in it where we fast forward to now and it's easy to look back on things and look at the positives now because it's turned out in in a positive way that Port Augusta has now in my view become the renewable capital of Australia. I think we're quite proud of that fact And, and we don't say that because we've got a solar thermal plant. We say that because as we speak right now there are 11 different renewable projects that either have approval or are seeking development approval with some $5.2 billion of private capital investment. Tell us a bit more. What sort of... Do you want to name them or just tell us a few of them? Yeah, so some of those I can obviously talk about. We know about the Aurora project, which is the solar thermal project, which is a tremendous project moving along. There is a second solar thermal project as well of equal size, which is proposed, again, just on the northern western side of Port Augusta, which is at a point where they've got a customer now and they've got their construction costs and you know, they will go public mm-hmm. when they're, they're ready to move. But that, again, will be another fantastic project for Port Augusta. We're now looking at pumped hydro. I know pumped hydro is nothing new when you compare it to, to Snowy Hydro Scheme. However, one of the, the flagship projects here through Energy Australia is looking at the world's largest seawater hydro plant. So the world's used to doing it with fresh water. Mm-hmm. What we're going to do is slightly different. We're going to take the water out of the sea and, and I guess be a, a world first when it comes to that element again. Solar PV. Solar PV is a very developed technology. Just about everyone's got it on their rooftop now. Port Augusta has almost finished construction of Australia's largest and in fact the Southern Hemisphere's largest solar PV farm at 300 megawatts and that's almost completed, will be completed in the next mm. next few months. Another one is batteries and we love talking batteries and <laughs> there's the big battery at Jamestown uh, a company called Pangea Energy only two weeks ago applied for development approval for a 300 megawatt battery to be built in Port Augusta only five kilometres from where we're sitting now and not only will it be a battery, it'll be a battery that doesn't use lithium ion technology so again, it's, it's a world first, not just because of its size, but purely the technology and also what's being used in that battery from a construction materials perspective. I think you could have ecotourism here to come and see all this exciting stuff, because I'll tell you why. When I was a child, this will tell you how old I am, I was taken to the Snowy Hydro Scheme by my mother, and we went inside the dam and we saw the turbines, and it was just a wonder of the world to me. It was like going inside a pyramid, and children were taken there. That was a thing you could be proud of, you know, the Snowy Mountain Scheme, and I think that's the same here. Oh, without a doubt. Absolutely without a doubt. And uh, projects like DP Energy, for example, where we, we could say it's going to be a wind farm with some solar PVs, or it's going to be the world's most unique, wind, or the biggest for a start, mm-hmm. combined wind and PV, but unique in the sense of purely where it's located. Most wind farms are stuck at the top of the mountains. These ones are going to be stuck at the bottom of the mountains because the geographical advantage we have here is with the Flinders Ranges and being at the top of the Gulf, there's actually a natural wind gully, and I don't know the technical engineering yeah. terminology for it, but a Apparently it's been identified and Ross Garno identified as that potentially the best location in the world for wind technology for off-peak. Wow. So we know that when it's windy on top of the hills, it's great. However, when those ones aren't spinning, the ones on the bottom here in Port Augusta will actually be spinning. So there is definitely a tourism opportunity on those differing technologies. I 
give comparison to Jamestown, and I had a conversation with the mayor of Jamestown where the big battery is, yeah. and he was told right through the process it'd be great for tourism, and he didn't believe it and mm. thought it was you know, a load of crap, to be honest. And he admitted to me only recently at an LGA board meeting that those people were right. He couldn't believe the number of people that were coming into Jamestown mm. with the caravans, non-caravans, going into cafes saying, how do I get to the battery? <laughs> he couldn't believe people. But, you know, we're all humans. We are attracted to new things and changing things, and we, and we probably all have some degree of engineering passion in our veins. Okay, well, look, I think a lot of climate action is being led by city councils around the world. New York, for example, is doing a huge amount now to counteract what their president is doing. <laughs> Negatively, they're doing positively in the New York City Council. And I think you have three councils here who co cooperate on something called a common purpose group. Can you tell us what they're doing? Yeah, so we have, I mean, the formal technical name is the Upper Spencer Golf Common Purpose Group. We, we trade at Spencer Golf Cities to make it a bit easier. The name's mm. a little bit, little bit shorter. Tell us the names of the cities. So Port Pirie, Whaler and, and Port Augusta are the three yeah. cities that are part of that alliance. Yeah. So when you go to Canberra, for example, when we go and meet with an energy minister or a regional development minister, if you go on your own, they sort of go, yep, yeah, no worries, thanks, see you mm -hmm. later. When they've got three mayors in there, the attitude changes significantly, and, I, and I've, I've seen that both at a state and a federal level when mm -hmm. I've gone alone or I've gone with one or two mayoral colleagues with me. It definitely changes the attitude, and more importantly, it changes the outcome. So if you can harness those relationships, which we've done, it's... Well, I know why Allah's going to have a steel, a billion dollars in, injected into a steel company. I don't know, it's just the headline at the moment. But that sounds like a very exciting development for the use of renewable energy in in uh, making steel. On the on the renewable energy front or on the climate action front to diminish emissions, you know, what um, what is the Common Purpose Group sort of focused on? What sort of items are you lobbying for? It depends on, on what the heat is or what the topical issues are at the time. We do try and take a more broad approach, strategic approach about growing the region uh, fairly and equally. And a good example, as you just mentioned, then the steelworks. So when the Steelworks had its big cloud of doubt put over the top of it, it wasn't just the Wyala community, it was the three communities that actually stood up and said, we're here to back Wyala and we're going to back the Steelworks. So when the politicians wanted to have a representation from Wyala, it wasn't just the Mayor of Wyala going alone, I went with them as did the Mayor of Port Pirie because we understood the importance of, of getting a good outcome for the people of Wyala. And that's what happens when you, you stand together and you stand in the trenches together, as did the people of Wyala and Port Pirie stand with us with the closure mm. of the power station and as we did with Port Pirie when the smelters in Port Pirie looked like that could have potentially closed in 2014 as well. Thankfully for Wyala, not only do they have a buy, which is fantastic, the buyer, Sanjeev Gupta, has a very strong focus on renewable energy. He's uh, identified already some very positive plans about investing into his own hydro schemes and solar schemes and battery schemes, so much so that he's now a major shareholder in Zen Energy, a major renewable company here in South Australia. How is climate change affecting the people? Let's come down to just the ordinary people who live around here. And also I'm thinking of animals. It's very arid. And I imagine that climate change is affecting you, even though there's a very... It's always been a huge variability, but how are people affected and how are they adapting? Yeah, adapting is probably a good question. Uh, probably for those of us who have lived in somewhere like Port Augusta where we're quite used to those dry, hot conditions. So I shouldn't say immune to it, but we're mm. certainly a lot more used to it, more resilient than what some other people would. Uh, I also find that 
people in our area are some of the biggest uptakers in evolving technology as well. One thing that was noticed definitely during the, the solar thermal and the repower Port Augusta campaign that there was a, a huge buy-in from the climate change groups to actually advocate for some real change. Okay. Well, Beyond Zero Emissions wrote the repower Port, Port, Port Augusta report and this community is living through the transition, but... I wonder what the council has learned about the process. I know it has not been pain-free and the people here are still suffering health impacts from the dust now coming from the rehabilitation. I know it's a big worry and I think it just sounds like the last straw for me because they went through a lot with high health impacts of the power stations. I think a lot of people listening to this will be perhaps in the Latrobe Valley or the Hunter Valley. There'll be lots of communities around Australia where exactly what you've gone through is going to happen fairly soon and they want to know what's the world's best practice. What, what have you learned from it? What do you think is the best way to transition and you told us how the council was sort of pounced upon by the company. They told you it was going to take longer and then they did it suddenly. But apart from that, what other things can the council's local governments do to make that transition more positive in the outcome? Mm. First and foremost, don't believe state or federal governments and or corporate entities. As sinister as that may sound, that's the truth of the matter. You're not going to get a straight answer from them, unfortunately. You've effectively got to control the outcome and try to control the outcome, but more so understand what it is you want. And I think that's where some of the greatest successes come from Port Augusta. The community understood what they wanted. They didn't like what had happened, but they understood what they wanted, and they understood that they wanted to go from here to here, so in other words, coal to, to solar thermal. And having that very clear, defined path that they wanted to go down certainly did help. I'd encourage all those other communities to do exactly that. You know there is going to be change. I know there's going to be change. We all know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. You need to understand now, what is it you want to replace it with? We're somewhat fortunate, I guess, in the sense that we had an idea of what it was we wanted to replace pre any decision of the closure of this power station but you need to know what it is you want have the community backing and start it now because no one's going to do it for you well why are the community here still complaining about the dust storms it's quite a while now since the power station closed down and i wonder can't the council force the power company to comply with normal air pollution standards that's a good question and Unfortunate under the circumstances we have here in South Australia, no, we can't. No, I'd love to say we could. I really would love to say we could. We don't actually have the legislative ability to, to go forth and do that. Although there was some environmental state-based legislation changes that occurred last year pre the, the exit of the, the Weatherall government, which does allow us now to serve notices, but serving notices on a, a corporate multinational company that really is home base in the Cayman Islands doesn't really <laughs> get you far other than expending an enormous amount on legal bills which we're, we're actually about to find out so the, the biggest problem we have here with dust is I think it's fair to say that this closure process has been poorly planned and to some degree poorly managed and that's from a number of parties particularly the EPA I, I have uh, no great uh, affection for the EPA I believe here in South Australia they have very very much failed the people of South Australia and very much failed the people of Port Augusta mm. I mean their title is Environmental Protection Agency I'm still trying to establish what exactly they're protecting other than their own asses. Mm. Okay well that's also the opinion of the Greenpeace report and I've understood that the EPA is different in different states I mean is there some room there to get the EPA to sort of uh, ramp up its standards in 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 concordance, let's say, with national standards. Absolutely, and, and that's where it stems back to. So Flinders Power, credit to them, they've always said, and to date they've always done, what the EPA have instructed them to do. Mm -hmm. So if the EPA say do X, Flinders Power have done it. They may not have done it overly well, but they've done it. 
the EPA to date have never actually enforced any key points. So when we start talking about dust issues, the EPA have never come out strongly. They've never issued any major order towards Flinders Power to rectify or stop or cease or whatever it may be. They've never done that. So much so, the actual rehabilitation started without an approved plan. The EPA lets months go by mm. when from this power out on site. Yes, they were in discussions and negotiations. There was never an approved plan. Mm. There was never a dust management plan. In fact, there was a, two versions of a dust management plan, and clearly it's still not working. So it's mm. one of those out-of-sight, out-of-mind scenarios. And I know this sounds incredibly cynical, but reality is if that site was sitting on the northern side of Adelaide, I could guarantee you the EPA would be taking a much greater interest in it. Well, that's natural because it's a bigger population there. But this is a, a feisty population here and a well-informed population. And I think the whole of South Australia is far more progressive than the other places I've been to in thinking. You know, it not, doesn't seem to be this big blockage. But what's the next step then? What's the solution? Well, we do now have a new government in South Australia and the Environment Minister, who was scheduled to be in Port Augusta today, unfortunately his flight was cancelled and, and couldn't be here, has every intention of being back again within the next two weeks. He's well aware of the issues that we've had both with the EPA and the previous government and the lack of attention and detail from the, the previous Environment Minister who showed no compassion or any connection to actually resolve the issue, which is unfortunate. I can't say whether the new minister is going to be better or worse because we're two weeks into a new government, but the fact that he's willing to make the commitment to come up and speak with not just myself but other members of the community, see the site firsthand and, and find out would be, I guess the proof will be in the pudding, but ultimately I think we know what the answer is here and that the EPA need to be held to account and as the Minister for Environment he's inadvertently responsible for the EPA. Thank you very much. I think this community is not going to take no for an answer. They're going to take that way. So thank you very much. So we've been talking to the Mayor of Port Augusta, Sam Johnson, in the Council Chambers. Thank you.